Christ Church. It's good to have you here this morning. If you have your Bibles, I do encourage you to get them on out. Turn to John. Uh, we will we'll start in chapter 11, but we'll spend uh, at least most of our time in chapter 12 before we jump into the Word of God. Let's turn to Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that, and that this morning as we turn to Your Word, that our hearts and our minds and our spirits would be uh, willing and ready to receive Your truth. Lord, we are so thankful, really beyond beyond words, for what You have done for us. We ask that um, today and always we might have the heart of, of Mary in our pouring out of worship uh, because of your goodness to us. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. And like I said, so our, our time is going to be uh, spent in... John chapter 12, that's the passage that we're actually looking at this morning. Uh, but we are going to start in chapter 11 just to get the context. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill... Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But Jesus heard it. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And we're going to stop there for a moment, and we're not going to look at the whole of chapter 11, but we're going to kind of jump through a couple different key passages in order for us to understand this. But let's stop here for a second and get a little bit of the context. First of all, this passage, I think, uh, is, is meant to go with our passage that we're going to look at today, which is uh, uh, John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. The reason why I think this is because our author Luke has, has done a few things literarily that kind of clues us into this. The story of, that we're going to look at in John 12, 1 through 8 is the story of, of Mary, uh, Lazarus's sister, anointing the feet of Jesus at this meal with this very expensive uh, perfume. And the reason why I'm pretty confident that this story is supposed to go with this previous section here, is verse 2. 
In verse 2, we have what's called uh, foreshadowing. Uh, basically, the author assumes that we have some idea of what's going on, and he tells us of a story that hasn't yet happened, the story that's going to happen here in just a few minutes. Chapter 12, in, in verse 2, it says, And Mary anointed the Lord with ointment. This has not happened yet as far as the Gospel of John goes. The other thing that kind of clues us into this is that we're told that the reason why this meal is being held in chapter 12 is because Lazarus was raised from the dead. But there's a couple other things that I think we have to pick up here. Number one, let's look at verse one. It says there is a certain man who is ill, Lazarus. This is not the first time we've met Lazarus in, in, uh, in the Gospels. But we notice that Lazarus, it's Lazarus, his sister Mary, and, uh, and their sister Martha. They are uh, a family, they're siblings. And they travel with Jesus. Just let me give you some context that we learn from other places. They have traveled with Jesus. They are very dear friends of Jesus. It's an interesting relationship, really, if you, if you study this relationship that Jesus has with Mary and Martha in Lazarus. In verse uh, 3 and in verse 5, we read that Jesus all recognize that Jesus uh, loves all of us, but this is a different kind of relationship. This is a different thing, a unique, uh, a unique relationship that Mary and Martha and Lazarus have with the man Jesus. The reason why this is important is because of uh, the way that Mary and Martha send for Jesus. They recognize that Jesus is a, a dear friend a loved friend of Lazarus, and they recognize that Lazarus, he's, he's sick, he's not really doing well, and so they send for Jesus, and they assume that because it's Lazarus, he'll come running. Really, most of us, when, when we know of somebody who is sick and perhaps uh, near death, most of us who we care about, if we care about that person, we're going we're gonna to go visit them. Now, now, Jesus, he's not just going to—he's not just a visitor. He's not just a, a companion that, that would be nice that he came. But he's a—he's a healer, and the Gospels have have done a pretty substantial job at showing this to us up until this point. And Mary and Martha—they recognize this. They understand this. Jesus, he heals people who are who are sick and who are near death. So he loves Lazarus very clearly. He's a, a dear friend of of Lazarus, and so he will certainly come and he will—he'll heal him. What's very interesting about this account, this account of Lazarus, his death, because he will die, is the way Jesus responds to it. Now, Jesus cares very deeply, like we said. He loves Lazarus. He hears that he is sick, and he cares that Lazarus is sick. We don't want to misunderstand this passage. But in verse 4, he turns to the, the messenger, and he says, uh, this illness does not lead to death. Now, he says this, and there's kind of this, this odd sense, right? We recognize the story that's, that's going to come, come uh, immediately follow this. And, and if you've read the Bible before, you probably might remember this story. This is a big one. But there's something about the way Jesus says this. This illness does not lead to death. 
It's just a strange way of saying it. Perhaps he could have said, he won't die, right? This is what, how we would normally say, oh, he's sick, but he's not going to die. And he says, it won't lead to death. Well, what, what do you mean? What, what path are we going on? And he says, no, 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 it's for the son, so that the son of, may, son of God may be glorified through it. Okay, now he's going to get sick. What is, what is going to be different about this sickness? Is he's, he's, again, he's foreshadowing a little bit of what's about to take place. And then verse 5, he loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And, and then verse 6, it says, So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Okay, so he seems to be, he seems to be, there's something different about this illness. It's, it's, it's a little bit unusual. We know that this, this event is going to happen where, where Lazarus's uh, sister Mary is going to anoint Jesus and something, something strange. We're, we're having this kind of, this buildup of tension a little bit. And then the most unusual thing really happens. Jesus, he says, it says when Jesus heard this news, instead of, instead of hurrying to Lazarus' side, instead, because of the news, he waits longer. Okay, Lazarus is sick. Okay, great. I'll be there eventually, seems like he says. Because we don't have the time to go through each and every part of, of what's taking place here through chapter 11, I'm going to kind of give us the, the quick story. He stays for two more days. And finally, he turns to his disciples and he says, okay, let's go to Judea. Now, chapter 11, in the first part of chapter 12, they're one kind of contained storyline. It's this, the last moments before Jesus enters into Jerusalem for the final week of his life. He will, it will end with his crucifixion on Friday and his resurrection on the following Sunday. It's the last thing that Jesus is going to do before that final Passion Week. And so there's these, there's these two threads that are going to follow their way through this, this story. The first is that Lazarus is going to die and is going to raise, and then there's going to be a response. This is what we're looking at. And the second kind of follows right along with it. Because Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, this is the last straw for the religious leaders, and they're going to want to put Jesus to death. Now, they already don't like Jesus, and there's already this tension, and the, and the apostles are beginning to have this sneaking suspicion that, that if, if the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, and the religious leaders, if they had their way, Jesus would probably be put to death. And now Jesus says, okay, let's go to Jerusalem. Let's go to Judea. And his disciples are like, wait a minute. Oh, that doesn't sound like a good idea. And Jesus is like, we're not going to walk around in the dark. We're going to walk around in the day. Jesus has been explaining this to his, his apostles for, for a number of months now. Look, we're, I'm, we're going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed there. Jesus is plenty aware of what's, what's going to take place. And really the apostles uh, seem to, they should at least understand this, but they're missing it. Finally, they decide to to go, because Jesus explains in verse uh, 14, or verse 11, excuse me, says, after saying these things, that we're not going to walk around in the dark, after saying these things, he said to, the, to, to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, 
but I will go to wake him up, to awaken him. His apostles, as normal, they don't get the metaphor. And so in verse 14, he says, he says it plainly. He says, and then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. And let us go to him. It's almost indicating for us that if, if Jesus was actually there, he would have healed Lazarus and something would be missing from the story. The resurrection of Lazarus is very, very important. And it's very, very important, I think, because it so very closely ties to the story, right? Jesus, in, in, the, in the next week and a half, is going to go into Jerusalem. He's going to be praised at the beginning of the week. He's going to be crucified at the end of the week. He's going to die like Lazarus died. And then he's going to raise from the death. He's going to raise from the dead as Lazarus was raised from the dead. It's not accidental that these stories are so close together. I think this is very much purposeful. I think this is exactly what Jesus is talking about when he says, look, this is for the glory of God. So, so Jesus, he heads to Bethany where, where Lazarus is. He knows that Lazarus has died. And as he's arriving, Martha approaches him. Martha, Lazarus's sister. In verse 21, it says, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if, it not, if, you had not, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Right? She recognized that Jesus healed a lot of people. If you, would, you cared about Lazarus, why didn't you come sooner? Why didn't you hurry on your way and heal him before, before he died? But even, even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it. I know that if you would have been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. But I also know that, that whatever you ask of God, uh, he'll give you. Now, this is faith. But she doesn't quite get it. She doesn't know that Jesus is about to raise a man from the dead. Because Jesus says to her in verse 23, your brother will rise again. It's exactly what they all want. They want him to be alive. And she says, Martha responds, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That hope of eternity in the future, whenever we all as, as Christians believe that we will be raised from the dead and the dead will come out of the tombs and, and enter into the presence of God. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's good, Jesus. But that doesn't comfort me now. I'm still hurting, it seems like she says. And Jesus is like, no, wait, wait, wait. No. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is in very few places does he ask a question so uh, poignant. 
probably only other situation is when he turns to Peter and he says, well, who do you say that I am? Peter responds, you are the Christ. Yeah, this is right. Jesus turns to, to Martha and asks the most basic and fundamental question uh, posed by any Christian ever. Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Now, Martha is experiencing death right now. She is, she is grieving and there's pain. And Jesus says, wait a minute. Yes, I understand this pain. Jesus, in just a few short verses, is going to weep. Jesus feels the same grief and the same pain that Martha is experiencing right now. Which is natural and good. We do care about people on this earth, and we are allowed to grieve and mourn them. Jesus grieves and mourns Lazarus moments before he raises him from dead. It's not what Jesus is doing. He's not, he's not criticizing her belief that, that one day they will be reunited. He's saying, no, wait. It's about me now. Seven times in the Gospel of John, Jesus uses the phrase, I am, and then he, he, he places a descriptor upon himself. I am the, the bread of life, the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. This is a profound statement, a statement that is, that is intimately tying uh, Jesus with uh, God, the great I am, the I am of the Old Testament. He's, he's connecting himself with God's uh, God's description as the God of salvation. I am the resurrection and the life. So in this moment of grieving over death, Jesus asks this question, do you believe that I am this? And she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. What follows is Jesus weeps. He goes to the tomb where Lazarus has been buried now for four days. He rolls the stone away. He prays to the Father and he says, Lazarus, come out. And a man who was dead comes out of the tomb. Still, by the way, wrapped in his uh, burial clothes. Sometimes I think that we are desensitized to the amazingness of the stories. A dead man rising. We talk about a dead man rising uh, hopefully every single week, every single day of our lives as Christians. We should think on this idea that a dead man is, is alive. But the story of Lazarus being called out by Jesus from the grave is stunning. It's so stunning, in fact, that it's the final straw, like I said. The plot thickens. I want to put Jesus to the death. And then we get to our passage in chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, because of the things that just took place, because he raised Jesus, or excuse me, raised Lazarus, from the dead, therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, naturally, right? You see a miracle, 
you want to celebrate the person who just did the miracle. You see somebody raised from the dead, you celebrate that for the rest of your life. They, they throw him a dinner. It says, Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is one of those stories that seems insignificant until you think until you think about it a little more deeply. All four gospel writers talk about this event. Not there, there are actually very few stories that all four gospel writers put put in. Right, John, he's he's the outlier. He's kind of the oddball who's writing a different kind of gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke we call those the synoptic gospels because they're very very similar. It seems like they're following the same path. John, he's different. He's not as he's not as interested in the things that Jesus did. He's interested in the things that Jesus said. And so it's very rare, in fact, it's, there's only a few things that have a feeding of 5,000, uh, Jesus' baptism, his death and resurrection, and the anointing of Jesus. Very few things that happen in all four Gospels. This is obviously a very important story, a story that was known in the ancient world after this happened. Why? So Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they throw Jesus this party. This is likely who is throwing this party for Jesus to celebrate the fact that he raised Lazarus from the dead, naturally. Martha is serving. This is the second time we, are, are, we see Martha serving in the Gospels. The first time, Martha is serving and she gets really frazzled because her sister Mary is just sitting at Jesus' feet, soaking up all the teaching. And she goes to Jesus, like, why don't you tell her to help me? Why isn't she helping me? He's like, no, no, you need to let her... You need to let her be with me because I'm only going to be here for a little while. Notice that Martha doesn't care anymore. Something has significantly changed for Martha. I would venture a guess to say that it's probably the resurrection of her brother Lazarus. And the understanding that the reason why he was raised was because Jesus is the resurrection of life. He's not the only person, she's not the only person that's changed. Lazarus is also there. In verse 2, Lazarus has changed because why? Pretty practically, he was dead and now he's alive. I don't, know if I, I, I don't know if I'm laboring this point, but this is supposed to be really stunning that a dead man is eating dinner with Jesus.
And then, and then Mary comes in and she does something that is absolutely stunning. And we totally miss it because we fly through this story because it doesn't seem to be all that interesting. And, and, and we don't get the context. And it says she took this, this, this perfume. Therefore, she took this perfume. Because Jesus raised her brother from the dead, she took this perfume, this expensive perfume. Now, there's a couple things that we kind of learn from this perfume and from the other times we encounter Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are likely wealthy people. In, in, at this time in history, in, in, in the ancient Near East, there were two classes of people. There were the rich people who provided everything. Theater, businesses, work for everybody else. That's like... 20% of the population. And that 20% of the population has about 90% of the money in the ancient world. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are probably in that percentage. Now, just to make things clear, just to make sure that this is clear, every single person in this room is more wealthy than Mary, Martha, and, and, and uh, Lazarus. We live in a completely different time. And the other class are the people who work every single day to buy the food that they're going to eat that day. Maybe they save up a couple pennies, uh, you know, a couple days so that they have a little bit of leeway, but most of the time they're working for that day's food. We know this because Mary, Martha, and Lazarus have, have put on a couple meals, which is typically what the rich people do, but also because Mary possesses a jar of very expensive perfume. Likely this very expensive perfume is Martha, or Mary's, excuse me, her, her dowry. The thing given when she is to be given in marriage. is the, the thing that's supposed to be given to the, to the husband's uh, family. It's worth 300 denarii. As calculated by our friend Judas, the one who betrays Jesus. Now what's a denarii? The denarii is a day's wage. Many, many people have heard that before. It's a day's wage. It's not necessarily a coin. Sometimes it was a coin. It's not necessarily a coin. It's just simply an amount. In the United States, we have what's called the poverty line. Basically, the government says, okay, if you make this much money, in a little, you, you make one penny more than this much money, you have enough money to eat food for a year and live. You're not going to have a home. You're not going to have anything. You're just simply going to have just enough to, to survive. In 2018, that was $12,150 or something like that in a year for one person. One year's wage. Judas, he points out for us that this is 300 denarii, 300 days wage. You take out 365 days, take out 52 Sabbaths where you're not allowed to work, a couple festivals and things like that. It's a year's wage. So just imagine for a moment that somebody came into the room where Jesus was. We're all there. We're watching. Come into the room and, and, and took a, a, a perfume worth $12,000 and dumped it on somebody's feet. Right? That's an astounding number, right? Now, we're all not poor people, right? We have, we have savings, maybe not very much, but we have, we have some sense of security in the finances because we are we are Americans. It's just simply by the, the lottery of life, we get to be wealthier than almost anybody else in human history. 
There ain't a single person in this room who, who, and I don't, probably not a single person on earth that would be okay with $12,000 just being gone. But Jesus is going to smell good for a week and then it's, then it's over. This is a huge amount of money. This, this expression here, this thing that, that Mary does is, again, it's, it's profound. She takes this thing that's, that's likely her value to a, to a potential husband. A monetary value to a, to a potential husband. And she dumps it out on Jesus' feet. Now in the other gospel, I think in, in Matthew and, and in Luke, they tell us that Mary dumps this on Jesus' head. There's not, not really a problem with this. Likely what she did, because a pint of perfume, which is what, what it actually says in the, in the Greek, is a pint of perfume, is more than you would need to pour on somebody's feet. So she probably, because Jesus is lounging at the table, the tables are really short, and you would lay on your left arm because everybody was supposed to be right-handed, even if you weren't right-handed. You would lay down, you would literally lounge out. You would recline at table. So Jesus is laying on the ground beside the table, and Mary comes in and she probably breaks open the jar and dumps it from head to foot all over Jesus. Probably very uncomfortable. We can all admit that. But John is trying to show us something even more, even more profound here. He says that Mary dumps it on Jesus' feet, and he points out Jesus' feet because feet in this time are disgusting. Right, We know the story of Jesus washing the, the disciples' feet, and they're all shocked, and, and they're like, what, what is Jesus doing? Why is he washing my feet? I should be washed. No, because, because everybody recognized that it's the job of the lowest servant in the house to wash somebody's feet because feet were gross. They're not much better now when we have socks and shoes and, and plumbing. At this time, the plumbing was the street. In the mud, in the muck, in the feces, on the road, and you wore sandals, not muck boots that you wear into the, into the barns. This is all over, caked all over your feet. It's disgusting. And so the people in Israel under, un, rightfully understood the feet to be the lowest part of the human. And Mary, she comes in and takes $12,000 worth of perfume and dumps it on the lowest of Jesus. Is that enough? Have, has John sufficiently made his point about how stunning this act of worship is? Because he goes on. He says, then she lets down her hair. Right? We live in a, we live in a different age where beauty is understood in a different way. I, I don't know if you know this, but if you go through history, the, 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 the image of beauty has changed over time. 200 years ago, a woman who was light-skinned was considered to be more beautiful than a woman who was dark-skinned or darker-skinned, tanned, because that person was wealthy because they didn't have to go outside and work in the sun and get tanned. It's completely different now, right? Trends change. In the ancient world, the glory of a woman, what made her beautiful was her hair. $12,000 has just been dumped on the lowest part of Jesus. And then, and then Mary it takes the glory of her being. Uh, maybe she's already gotten rid of her monetary value as a wife. She takes the glory of her being, her hair, and she weeps on Jesus' feet and wipes his nasty 
feces-covered feet with her hair. I don't know in all of Scripture if there is any more vivid display of worship. Right In the Old Testament, I've, I've talked about this in, in the past, in the Old Testament, the word that we translate in English is worship, comes from the word that we translate in, as, as to prostrate oneself, to lay flat. And it comes from the, the, the physical representation of what, uh, what actually is in maybe your class. So if, if you, a peasant, would enter into the, the court of a king, he is a higher class, a more important person than you are. And so you would come into his presence and you would represent that class distinction by bowing yourself down low, likely laying flat on the ground to physically represent the realities. If a king would enter into the presence of an emperor, there's still a class difference between that emperor and the king. And he would bow down and lay low and, and show himself to be physically represented what is reality around him. Mary, she comes in and she dumps everything that she is upon the feet of Jesus. I don't think there can be a more vivid display of worship than that. It's a stunning display. She pours all she is upon Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Yes, I think it's very important that, that Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. But I think Mary gets something deeper here. Jesus first has to, or, or Judas, excuse me, Judas first has to interrupt this very special moment. He says, look, you, why did you waste this money? Could have been given to the poor. Doesn't that sound good? I hope that there's not a single person in this room who has scolded Judas in our hearts for saying such a horrible thing. Because what he says is really very, very practical. And it's very biblical, right? From, from Genesis to Revelation in Scripture, God commands His people to take care of the poor and the widows and the orphans. And that, that is our responsibility. In fact, one of the reasons why the people of, of Judah are cast into exile is because they weren't doing this thing. And so Judas is like, look, what a waste. We could have been serving the poor. Now, Judas has some other motives. He's a thief. John tells us this. But he's not wrong. If we go to the other gospel accounts, the other gospel accounts don't tell us that it's Judas. They just say the disciples. And probably what happened is Judas said, wait a minute, that's a year's wage. Why didn't we give that to the poor? And they're all like, yeah, that's a good idea. Just so you know, that's all of us saying the exact, yeah, that's a good idea. And Jesus goes, wait a minute, no. You don't understand. You don't, you don't understand. He says, he says in verse 7, leave her alone. It's not passive. Very agitated language. Doesn't come across as well in the English. Be quiet, he says. Shut your mouth, he says. Judas interrupts this very intense moment of worship. 
to point out something that maybe should have been pointed out. But Jesus is like, no, no, you're missing it. He doesn't scold him for his, his broken and contemptible heart. Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. He knows that he's going to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. By the way, a piece of silver is likely a denarii. Jesus is, or Judas is willing to betray his nearest and closest friend, Jesus, for, for one-tenth of what was just dumped out on Jesus' feet. Be quiet. Let her, let her keep it, he says, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. And this is why I think that Mary gets it. I think what he's saying is let her hold on to that moment. Better hold on to that moment. You, you, ever, you ever realize that there's moments in life? There's moments in life where the nearness of God is much more obvious than at other times. And sometimes we can, we can take hold of that and we can remember it. and we can, we can stay in it. I think that was what was happening with Mary. She realized because her brother Lazarus was just raised from the dead that something profound has just taken place. And she realizes because she's been with Jesus, with his disciples. She's been hearing the things that Jesus has been talking about. Maybe she was with Jesus with Jesus, and Peter whenever Jesus goes, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter's like, I am the Christ. And then Jesus says, yeah, I am the Christ, and I'm about to die and be raised. And now Mary is starting to make these connections. So Jesus, he's the resurrection and the life. He just raised this man from the dead. This is for the glory of God. Maybe this is what Jesus is talking about. And so she takes this oil, this anointing oil for burial. And she goes into the presence of Jesus and she dumps it on him as if to say, I get it. I know that you are about to die. And Judas has to raise his corrupted voice to sully the moment. Jesus says, don't you take that away from her. Let her hold on to this and possess it until I am buried. And then he says something that just shocks me. He says, you will always have the poor with you. But you do not always have me. I, I want to make this abundantly clear. The Bible is, in fact, 100% in accord with itself that we as followers of Christ are to take care of the poor and the orphans and the widows. There is no contradiction in Scripture on that point. What Jesus is doing here is he's creating an order of importance. He says, listen, I'm here now and you will always have the poor. Seize the moment of worship and give it everything. He's commending Mary's action here. He doesn't chastise her for wasting $12,000 because $12,000 has never been wasted on the worship of God. Because God is worth far more. Do we recognize that? And thinking about all the things that we've been talking about over the past couple weeks going through Lent, realizing the, the depth 
of our depravity and our, and our wickedness and our brokenness and our separation from God and, and knowing and recognizing that what Christ has done is not because we're good people, but because we're broken people, that He came to save those who were dead and lost without Him, not because of our goodness, but because of His. There is only one true response. Abundant, abundant outpouring of our worship. Sometimes that manifests itself as it did here in Mary dumping $12,000 of perfume on Jesus. Not always. I doubt that it would be right for us to all go out and buy $12,000 worth of perfume and come in here next week and dump it on the floor. I doubt that that's what Jesus is trying to say here. But if Jesus would enter into this room, it would never be wrong for us to lavishly pour it out upon him. There are moments in life where we feel the presence of God more nearly and we need to seize those moments of worship. Irregardless of what it costs us. In our status, in our finances, in anything. Because what we can give back to God in comparison to what He has given to us is grossly out of balance. I've said before, I don't think I would give my children up for any of them. And God has for each of us. It's grossly outweighed into his favor. And so what should our response be? Our response should be like Mary's to pour ourselves out wholly upon him. Because of the work he did on the cross for us. Father, all we have is is our feeble offerings to give to you. But we want to give them, Lord. We want to give them wholly to you. So, Lord, as we sing this last song, we pray that our hearts would be abandoned for you that our fears and our doubts and our worries and anxieties would be cast upon you, that no matter the cost, we would worship you. I pray this in your precious Son, Jesus' name.